Access Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Mac. On today's show, the Senate gets its own cryptocurrency expert, and a 78-year-old poet makes business history in Michigan. But first, Bloomberg's media mess. So shortly after Michael Bloomberg officially threw his hat into the 2020 presidential ring, the news organization bearing his name announced that it wouldn't cover his candidacy. And then it went a giant step further, saying it also wouldn't cover any of his Democratic rivals. Now, to a certain extent, this was just the extension of a long-standing Bloomberg news policy against covering both its namesake his businesses, his philanthropy, and his time as mayor of New York. The basic thinking was that any positive coverage would be viewed by readers as self-serving, and any critical coverage might be viewed as not critical enough. But this rock and hard place argument hasn't gone over too well with the public, and in particular, the MAGA public, who sees it as fundamentally unfair to President Trump, who Bloomberg News does plan to keep covering, at least for now. And to hammer home that point, the Trump campaign has pledged not to credential any Bloomberg News reporters at its events. The bottom line here is that this policy undercuts Mike Bloomberg's main electoral argument, that he's a highly competent manager. He could have preempted all of this, maybe separating Bloomberg News from his broader financial services company and, say, leaving a contractual partnership between them, all before jumping into the race. But he didn't do that. And the result is controversy for both his campaign and for his employees. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. But first, this. Axios chief technology correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata podcast. We're joined now by Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. After Mike Bloomberg publicly enters the race and Bloomberg News basically says we are not going to cover him and we're no longer investigating Democrats, your gut initial reaction was what? Well, first, I didn't realize there was going to be as much blowback as there has now been. I mean, we didn't realize that the Trump administration was going to come back and quite frankly, ban reporters from campaign events. My first reaction was this is going to get them in trouble, but I didn't realize how much until I saw it play out. Do you feel it was the right decision for the news organization? Let's leave Bloomberg himself out of it for a minute. For the news organization, was this the right decision? And do we even think this is a decision made by the news division? Well, I think that the first decision to not investigate Michael Bloomberg, his wealth, his foundation came from Michael Bloomberg. He wrote about it in a book. He said the reason he didn't want his newsroom to be covering him is because he didn't know that they could do it in a completely unbiased way. They're covering the people that, you know, cut their paycheck. How are they able to be unbiased? Now, my opinion on that is I cover Comcast, NBC Universal. I don't even think about the fact that they're my investors, but I'm not dealing with a specific person day to day. The actual policy that was then extended to the newsroom was probably crafted in conjunction with the newsroom. I can't imagine that the newsroom isn't going to want to have some input into this policy, which extends that ban of covering Michael Bloomberg to his Democratic rivals. My opinion on it is this. If you can't cover Michael Bloomberg and then his Democratic rivals, but you will cover the Trump administration because obviously they are politics day to day, they are policy day to day, then you by nature have an unbalanced coverage. You're covering one side of the political fight much more closely than you're covering the other. And so I actually understand why the Trump administration is frustrated here. I don't know if I would have gone as far as to ban reporters from campaign events, but I completely understand why they're frustrated. 
There's the inconsistency of that. And there also seems to me to be an inconsistency on issues, right? Because if whether it be healthcare or whether it be gun control or pick a thing or, or whatever is the next big hot political topic on which Michael Bloomberg or any Democratic candidates or Trump takes a position, if Bloomberg News is willing to write about that issue, it's diving into those waters, even if it's not, quote, writing about the campaign explicitly. Yeah, that's right. It will cover policy, even though it's not going to cover the politics around campaigns, arguments and positions. I actually think it's going to make it harder for them to cover policy, because if you're only able to do investigative reporting on the position of one side, you can't do investigative reporting on the position of another. By nature, you're not going to have very strong reporting on the issue because you're not going to have strong reporting on both sides sides of it. I think this puts the newsroom in a completely untenable position. And I think what's next is understanding what are they going to do if Bloomberg actually gets the nomination? They said in their statement the other day that they're still weighing if they would revisit this policy. We're just a few months away. They don't have that much time. Michael Bloomberg wasn't going to run for president. He had said he didn't see a path. It didn't make any sense. And it seems that he jumped into this pretty spur of the moment, I guess you could say, is the fact that he didn't somehow plan for this piece of it. In other words, he could have spun Bloomberg News off into some sort of, you know, put it in a trust or a blind trust. He could have made it it's an independent organization if he had been planning to do this for months and months and months. Is the fact that he didn't, from your perspective, a reflection that he really kind of decided last minute, let's just go for this thing? Absolutely. And I think it's also a reflection of this thing was not fully thought through. If you're going to be running for public office and you own a news arm, my first reaction would be, how do I make sure that this news arm is protected as independent? Do I sell it? Do I spin it out? The fact that this was something that is come down to a last minute sort of news announcement tells you that this was not planned out long in advance. The other thing it could say is that they don't think it's a big deal, that Bloomberg doesn't think it's a major issue. Clearly, it's a major issue. This news organization employs 2,700 journalists around the world. That's not including people who are technologists or salespeople, entire businesses around it. You're talking about the jobs of thousands of people that are going to be impacted because of your decision. To me, leaving it to this sort of last minute, well, this is how we're going to cover it, this is how we're not, is kind of an immature move. Speaking of the organization itself, and since you're a media reporter, you know, Bloomberg within the media world has always been known for being a kind of somehow difficult place to work sometimes from an editorial perspective, but they pay really, really well. So they don't generally lose people once they've got them. Are you hearing any rumblings of folks internally at Bloomberg, particularly who cover politics, who are now looking for work elsewhere, saying, I, I can't? I haven't heard rumblings that have been that severe. I do know, I've heard from sources that there is a lot of frustration within the newsroom. And quite frankly, you've had reporters who have been dedicated to covering the 2020 beat and investigating 2020 Democrats. So what do they do now? They still want to make sure that they have people out on the campaign trail and covering it. But imagine this, if you're assigned to a beat, but you can only cover day-to-day interaction, you can't actually follow up and do some more severe investigative reporting. What's the point of your job? So I haven't heard that anyone is looking to quit this second, but we definitely know that there is a lot of frustration. And to your point, that notion of what we call golden handcuffs absolutely rings true with Bloomberg that you have to clock in and clock out. It shows you on your in terminal profile, which is sort of their internal system, when you're in the office and not in the office. It definitely puts a lot of pressure on employees to act a certain way, to be in the office a certain way. But for the most part, I've never heard that anyone was too frustrated with it because people are paid well. There's free soup. It's a nice place to work. I imagine, though, that if you're going to start doing these restrictive policies around reporting, 
that those golden handcuffs are less appealing now. Sarah, final question for you. You made a comment that other news organizations owned by billionaires, and there's not a huge number, but you think uh, News Corp, Rupert Murdoch with News Corp, or with the Wall Street Journal, rather, I think Jeff Bezos with the Washington Post, they have not put the same restrictions on their newsrooms in terms of covering them and their business interests, correct? This is a unique situation unique situation. And I think that those news organizations are much better off for it. The Washington Post is not in this position. Time Inc. is not in this position. The Atlantic, owned by Lorreen Paul Jobs, Steve Jobs' widow, is not in this position. I think, if I had to make a guess, this policy is going to be untenable for their news organization, especially if Michael Bloomberg were to get the nomination. And down the line, they might have to revisit it to look a little bit more like the policies of other billionaires, which is cover me. We trust you to do it in an unbiased manner. And then we, as the subject of coverage, have to deal with it. Axios Media reporter Sarah Fisher, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dan. My final two right after this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is Georgia, where Governor Brian Kemp today is expected to name businesswoman Kelly Leffler as an interim U.S. senator, succeeding incumbent Johnny Isaacson, who's retiring at year end due to failing health. This decision by Kemp has caused all sorts of internal Republican Party drama, as Leffler is not who President Trump and his supporters wanted Kemp to pick. But all of that is obscuring a pretty big business story, namely that Leffler will become one of the precious few U.S. senators who understands technology let alone blockchain technology. You see, Leffler spent most of her career in marketing and investor relations at Intercontinental Exchange, which owns the New York Stock Exchange. But since the middle of last year, has been CEO of an ICE subsidiary called Bact, a cryptocurrency infrastructure company that's raised nearly $200 million from big-name backers like Microsoft, Starbucks, and Boston Consulting Group. The Senate has expressed a lot of interest in more clearly regulating digital assets, particularly in the aftermath of Facebook's Libra announcement, and most of the mainstream crypto markets would welcome common rules of the road, but are understandably worried that most senators are swimming in pretty ignorant waters. Now, Leffler won't have too much legislative sway, given her interim status. She's also the junior senator and the inherent controversy, but she could become an invaluable asset for both sides of the cryptocurrency regulation conversation. And finally, in 1969, a 28-year-old Michigan man named John Sinclair was arrested for possession of two marijuana joints and served nearly three years of a 10-year prison sentence. Fast forward to 2019, and Michigan has become the ninth U.S. state to legalize pot. And Sinclair, who's now a poet, was the very first in line to buy. As he told ABC News, quote, it's about time. I've been waiting for this for 50 years. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Showers and Jesse Lee, have a great National Sock Day. And to be clear, that is sock singular, not socks plural. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.